If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliam. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? If you hear some heavy panting, it is not John <laughs> getting overexcited. It is the old dog, Sasha, who's just decided that she's coming down to the HQ or the, she's or the Orange Lodge, as you call it. <laughs> the Orange Lodge. <laughs> Shan painted one of the walls down to the basement orange, a real bright Ulster orange. To make her feel at home. Hey, <laughs> it's only expression of our culture. Anyway, it's great to have you. It's podcast time. We're going to split this podcast into two, John. Yes, the indeed. first podcast, well, the first part of the podcast, we're going to talk about Germany's choice. And I think something despicable that the Germans announced in the last couple of days, which was they are not going to sanction any Russian gas, Right. Yep. So I want to talk about that because basically that's what Putin has been waiting for. Yeah. He's been waiting for a big Western country to say, Do you know what? We're not going to turn off a gas heater outside a pub for the Ukrainians, which is what the Germans yeah. said in effect, right? It's beyond me. Second part of the podcast, that fascinating story of Elon Musk. Oh, yes. On Twitter. Yes. Yeah, and we're yeah. going to explain with Mark Little. Remember Mark Little from yeah. Prime Time? Great yeah. guy. Mark's going to explain to us what it all means. It means for media, it means for the internet, all that sort of stuff. But it's fascinating. But the... We kick off germs. What about you? You COVID, my man. COVID. Oh, poor man. old John was. I was laid low. I, I on Sunday last Sunday, I felt it kind of coming on. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I couldn't move. I literally couldn't move. So you got a you got a quite bad dose because I was in London because you know usually I try to get as far away from you as possible. Yeah. And I said he's got COVID. <laughs> I'm going over to the Ingerland. Over to the mainland. Yeah. No, but I tell you what, if I wasn't vaxxed, I shudder to think what it would be like. I would be in hospital. Definitely. Really? They're very weak, those Davises. They're very weak lungs. There's always a want in that family. <laughs> but I'm back. I'm back at it now. I'm all good. He's back. He's panting. He's ready to go. <laughs> John Davis, ladies and gentlemen. Anyway, no, I want to talk to you about Germany because the key strategy for Putin has always been to play the long game and wait until the Western alliance atrophies. Yeah. One Western country is going to break ranks and the extraordinary thing this time is that it's Germany. Now, for a variety of reasons, which we'll talk about, you would imagine that Germany would be more sensitive to the Ukraine than yeah, anything else, possibly, right? Yeah. Okay. We're talking about in, within living memory. Yeah. Germans have stomped around that neck of the woods 
and done horrendous things, right? Yeah. So you'd imagine that in the thinking process in Berlin, say, hold on a second, we're the major, major country here. But I was reading a tweet sent out by the German ambassador to America, and it was just mealy mouth. And it basically said, we're not going to risk one percentage point of our GDP for Ukrainian lives. It's unbelievable. It and, it's, and, it's, and it's infuriating as well. But, you know, I never thought I'd hear myself say this. Trump was right. <laughs> Would you stop bringing everything back to Trump? No, I think it's important here. I genuinely think this is important. And it's also important for a second half of our conversation as well about social media in Trump's truth social that he's launched and how well that's doing or not, as the case may be. But Trump maintained, and it's the only thing that I actually agreed with him on, is the fact that he was saying that Germany should never have got themselves into this situation with... With uh, Russia. No, with no, Russia. And, and, let, and let's talk about how they did this. Because, yeah, I mean, yeah. what the extraordinary thing is that the Germans have basically given the two fingers to everyone, right? They've given the two fingers particularly to Eastern Europe, right? Yeah. So all those democracies from Estonia right down to Romania, right? They depend on German leadership, right? And Germany's always... Willy Brandt, this German, I think I've said it before, Chancellor from the, from the 70s said that Germany was a economic giant, but a political pygmy, yes. right? And we'll talk about that in a second. But all those countries need Western Europe to stand with them. And all those countries need to know that when push comes to shove and when Putin invades, that we will stand with them and we will take some pain. Yes, yeah. He also gave the two fingers to Washington because this destroys Biden's coalition. Because Biden's coalition is based on China isn't joining it, India isn't joining it. Yeah. South Africa isn't joining it. A lot of African countries are equivocal, but at least the Europeans are there. Yeah, and yeah. I think what you know, what the Germans said was, we're not going to risk one iota of GDP for you. Yeah, but it is surprising given the central role and the leading role that Germany has always had in that special role as kind of almost leader of the EU. Yeah, as they say in German, es ist ein besonders Land. We can do it auf Deutsch. <laughs> die, die ganze Dinge auf Deutsch, <laughs> mein Süßling. Uh, no, but I just, the interesting thing is, I get, years ago I learned German. I've been interested in German culture for a long, long time. I've always been fascinated by this land, which is sort of bookended, John, by the Rhine on the west and the Elbe on the east and the Danube at the bottom. Like it's a perfect square. Yeah, and the yeah, border, yeah, yeah. it's a perfect square in the middle of Europe. It's been defined by geography, right? Defi actually, do you know what it was defined by, John? The bizarre, did you ever hear of a Roman legionnaire called Varus? No, go so on. Varus <laughs> decides to take on the barbarians 9 AD. Right. Caesar always never went after the, the Germans in the forest. The Germans would come out of a raiding party, yeah. raid the, the Romans, and then go back into the forest. Yeah, and yeah. Caesar said, I'm not going, understanding guerrilla warfare, Caesar said, I'm not going to this. Yeah. And Varus said, I'm going to go after those feckers, right? right. He goes in, they lost 20,000 men in one afternoon, the Romans, right? Okay. Wow. It was called the Battle of the Teutonberg Forest, right? Right. And mad pan-nationalist Germans always focus on that, saying that was the beginning of Germany, 9 AD. So you're going back. Okay, and yeah, yeah. But if we if we if we look at Germany, look, everything goes everything European goes through Germany because of its geography. Number one, and number two, if you look at Germany, if you look at from for example the death of Bach, the great composer, yeah. to 1933, that period, 
was a period of German genius where Germany dominated Europe in every sense, philosophy, in economics, in mathematics, in politics and political theory. It produced Karl Marx, it produced Kant. I mean, we're talking mm. about the, all of Europe's intellectual history is German, right? They, do you know that they produced more Nobel Prize winners in the 20th century, in the first 30 years of the 20th century, than America and Britain combined? Really? Yes, yeah, so this, this is an amazing country, right? Nobel Prize for... For everything. So, oh, for, every, for everything. For okay. everything. Well, well, Einstein being, you know, but for, for, for maths, for science, yeah. for, for literature, for everything, right? Yeah. Clever and, stuff. I mean, they're an incredibly clever race, right? And they're so important. That's why they're special. But, but after the Second World War, what they did in the Second World War has destroyed their sense of themselves. Like when I'm in Germany, and I go a lot, I always feel that it's a nation kind of suffering kind of collectively from post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm-hmm. Like the neurosis of the war, the fact that they should be leading, but they don't want to lead. We won't give them the permission to lead. They themselves don't want to be leaders because of what they did in the past. So you have this really conflicted country. Are, 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 psychologically, as, as a nation, were they kind of shocked by, by themselves uh, how far they went in, in the, the whole evolution of Nazism? I think, I, think, I think they were. I think there's a lot of really interesting books reappraising this now. Yeah. I mean, there's a book I'm reading at the moment, John. You'd love it. It's called... The German genius, right? You're right. Europe's third renaissance, second scientific revolution in the 20th century by Peter Watson, who's an American writer. And it's basically about this period where the Germans produced everything, every single thing, and then they destroyed it under Nazism. And right. they never really recovered. But it's an extraordinary book. It's a big yoke, okay? But it's about the Renaissance. Basically saying that the European Renaissance, we think, happened in Italy. But yeah. he said there was a second renaissance that happened in Germany. And that's really the epicenter of everything European. And now what we see is the Germans being completely hostage to the Russians. Yes, yeah. You know, and they allowed themselves to get into that position. They made peace with the Russians. But surely they, they could see this coming down the tracks. You know, Putin's in power 20 years. And this was his kind of game all along. And how come the Germans didn't see it? Well, it's interesting. There's, I've also been reading this week, John, just for you, when you were COVID. Yes, great. A guy called Alexander Dugan, who was Putin's philosopher, who was basically still alive, a Russian, extreme right nationalist thinker. Very brilliant. Very, yeah. very brilliant. And he has said in no uncertain terms, right, and Putin's been playing for his playbook, that the Russian world is what he talks about, which is a Russian-speaking world, Russian mm. culture. He's the one who started this idea that the Ukrainians are not people. They're not a race. They're basically Russians who have been persuaded by the West oh, right. to think they're a race. Yeah. He's the one who said, we're going to divide the country up in half. He's the one who said, this is all about 10 or 15 years ago. He's the one who said, we're going to get Crimea. He All these areas, everything that Putin's doing, if you read Dugan. And of course, that would have... So it's Dugan's playbook. It's Dugan's Putin... playbook, yeah. Right. Alexander Dugan, right? D-U-G-I-N, right? But if you look at... Anything to the Duggans down in Waterford. Remember Derek Dugan? He used to play. For, remember Derek Dugan played for Northern Ireland. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, for Wolves. Classic nineteen seventy. Little segue into nineteen seventies football trivia. There, back into German genius. Anyway, yeah, we're back in the room. Back in the room. Back in the room. But you're absolutely right. Like it's an amazing oversight. And if you think Gerhard Schroeder, mm. who won three elections as the SPD, right, the Social Democratic Party in Germany, he ends up on the board of Gazprom. 
Rosneft. He's like the broker between yeah, Russia, right? Yeah, 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 that's right. You have Angela Merkel now. People are saying, well, she was cozying up to the Russians all the time as well. And of course, it's got to do with the Second World War. There is a German guilt about Russia. Yeah. And there is a German yearning for peace with Russia, not because they're afraid of the Russians, mainly because they feel that Germany needs to be the one that accommodates all the time, right? Yeah. So they were quite happy, as you said, to say to the Americans, we're not going to defend ourselves. So the Americans had to pay about 2 or 3% of German GDP every year to pay for German defence, right. right? There's also, forget, Germans of our generation a little bit older were the people who were brought up in the 70s and 80s, and they are profoundly peacenik, right? So there was a huge anti-war movement. Why? Because all the nuclear weapons of mm, Europe mm. were in East or West Germany. They would have been destroyed. Yeah. And the game plan between NATO and the Warsaw Pact was destroy Germany anyway. So there's a, there's a huge yearning for the best possible outcome, right? Uh, but the problem is, you know, the, they say, when you're faced with a dilemma, you define your reality not as you'd like it to be, but as it is. Yeah. And you do something about it, right? So they defined the reality, not as it was, but as they hoped it was. That, as you said, Putin was fine and the Americans were scaremongering and etc. Now we see that they are not only hostage to the Russians, that's okay. Yeah. But much worse is the moment of moral clarity came this week when they said, we don't care. Yes. So that's, that's the thing. Yeah, yeah, The rest yeah. of the, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, they're all hostage to the Russians too, but they've cut off their gas. Yeah. The, the Germans says, we don't care. Why? Because we are going to allow the interests of corporate Germany to dominate everything. We're not going to, as I said, turn off a gas heater. We're not going to turn off air conditioning. We're not going to not drive between Berlin and Munich. For once, one, we're, we're going to continue to power our entire economy. And if you look at, you know, German economists have said this week, you know, it'll knock two or three percentage points off German GDP, right? Yeah. It'll lead to 400,000 increase in employment, unemployment, right? Yeah. But if you think there's about 50 million Germans working at the moment, so 400,000. That, that seems quite conservative. Well, you see, that, that's... What, what are that, they basing that on? Well, I'm basing on the fact that this is me off the top of my head. Right, so basically German population <laughs> is about 85 million, right? Yeah. And typically the labour force is about two-thirds of that. Right. Because basically your labour force isn't your whole population. Yep, it's the population yep, yep. between 15 and, and 65. So let's say there's about 50 million Germans working. 400,000 is less than 1%. So what I'm saying is the impact of cutting off straight away the gas has been assessed by many German economists this week as having significant but modest impacts on the overall thing. Yeah. But they're not even prepared to accept that. So if you're sitting in Ukraine, you've just been hung out to dry. Absolutely. You've been completely hung out to dry by the Germans, right? And Germany is important. It's more important than France. It's more important than Italy. More important than Britain in this big, big game. For now, though. For now. For now. And the problem is they had... A this of, might change things. It's hard to see changing things because... The German trick was the following. Germany has become a carbon junkie, yeah. right? If you disaggregate the German economy, what actually has happened is Germany has imported fossil fuels from the rest of the world, converted them into products and re-exported them, right? And it's a kind of a three-card trick since 1990. They imported cheap energy from Russia, mm. used that energy to fuel their manufacturing base and exported it to China. And that's why Germany has done so well, Okay. And now somebody's saying, the world, that three-card three trick ain't working anymore. 
you've got to accommodate, you've got to change. And what they're saying is, no, we're not going to change. And I mean, it's an, I, I find it extraordinary. But, you know, th- there's also, suppose, and this is the bit I can't quite get my head around, is that they are trying to denuclearize Germany as, as yes, such. Yes, yes. But at the moment, there are still, is it seven nuclear power stations that are due to be decommissioned? This year. This year. Why can't they just stall that? Keep them going for another few years? Because they're suiting themselves. What I'm telling you, this is a moment where Germany has said, we are not going to inconvenience ourselves one iota from our central position for anything in Ukraine. Wow. Now, it seems to me completely bonkers because the big threat from Putin is he doesn't stop here. Yes, That's of course. the threat. You know, yeah. if he gets away with this, he goes again. If he gets away with it, he goes again. And the big threat is on Germany's eastern border. And at the moment, what they're saying to Putin is, don't worry, we'll keep giving you money. Just go away, be a nice guy. When he is literally carrying out a genocide yeah. in Ukraine. Which is now being funded by Germany. Which is now being funded by Germany. And the craziest thing about it is, if you think about the pandemic, John, right? Yeah. Remember we said, Europe couldn't, we could never turn off the economy. We could never pay for anything. Mm. We turned off the economy and we paid for everything. We borrowed. Yeah, it worked. We printed yeah. money and it yeah. worked. So it's not as if we can't at the European level say to the Germans, look, we can look after you. We can figure this out. We can actually cushion the pain. But what they've made is a moral choice because war is about moments of moral clarity. It's about taking sides. I've always said to the kids, when I, no, the kids, I always said to them, always take sides. <laughs> no, no, really, in scraps, yeah. take a side. Yeah. Because, and I believe you've got to take a side because not taking a side always empowers the aggressor. Yeah. Right? If you say, oh, well, it's not really my fight. Right? It always yeah. empowers the aggressor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It never empowers. It enables the bully. It enables the, the bully. So yeah. you've got to take a side. And I've always said to my kids, and I always, I've always worked like this, stand up to these fuckers. Yeah. Even if you know yeah, yeah, you I can't. Agree. Totally. Even if you know, if you, even if you know that you're going to get smacked around, take a side and take a moral side. And I mean, I just find it extraordinary. And I'll tell you what, we, we conclude this, right? Because uh, it, it has made me really quite cross. Okay? I can see you're... And, and, and he's, he's a bit angsty. He's, he's kind of shifting in I, the seat I, there. I, I go to, you know, Germany all the time. As I said, I spent years in the Goethe Institute learning the language, trying to learn the language. I love the literature. I love the place. I like the people. You know, my son's doing German in college. Like, you know, we yeah. set them in exchange there, took a German kid here. It's like a hostage situation. We had their kid, they had ours. Okay. But you don't have time. We've taken German kids into the family, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And I, I'm just thinking, you know, wow, this is a moment of clarity. And again, we're not hearing this in the Irish media. So what, what do you think the backlash of this is going to be? Is this going to be... Well, the backlash half- is that Putin is sitting in the Kremlin saying, I told you so. But but in terms of, say, the EU, what what is it going to do to the Union? Well, this is the so you so for example, you have France going into an election, yeah. right? Yeah. Macron tried to play the I'm a statesman, it's all gonna be a Ukraine card. And it looks as if that's gonna be really tight. So Macron can't say anything until next week or the week after. Yeah. If Le Pen wins, Le Pen is Putin's buddy. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Le Pen wins. Think about this thing. Le Pen wins. Imagine that, right? Germany says we're not gonna turn off the gas. Imagine being a Pole. Imagine being a Czech person, yeah. a Slovakian, a Romanian, right? Hungarian, right? You're on the border of Russia, all the European powers. The Brits won't even let anyone in. They're sending them all to Rwanda. 
Do you know what I mean? That's that's something else we need to discuss. Like, but, like you're yeah, sitting you're there right. as a you're Ukrainian, right. you're thinking, what the fuck? Right? Yeah. You know what? I'm going to leave you with the words. There's a very, very famous, famous quote by a guy called Pastor Martin Niemöller. Yes. And Martin Niemöller yeah. was an, a Protestant pastor who was jailed by the Nazis. He was anti-Nazi. But he had an amazing quote about the Nazis and about moral clarity when it comes to standing up and taking a side. He said, first they came from the socialists. And I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came from the trade unionists. And I didn't speak out. I didn't speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out, because I was not a Jew. And then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak out for me. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's certainly much more of this game to play and let's see how this plays out. But let's now move on to Elon Musk. Your mate. Elon Musk and Tinternet. And, and the Tinternet and the Twitter. And the Twitter. So this week, when John was laid up with the COVID and I was... The COVID. With the COVID. It's like the RTE. My yeah. mother calls RTE the RTE, right? <laughs> and I was in Hackney. Great place, actually. You, yeah, I yeah. Know I always like that area. Yeah, yeah. No, I was, I was, I was feeling very, very hipster. Very gentrified now. It's very gentrified now. Yeah. Because I, I remember years of the last time I was in Hackney. The last two times was one was playing football in the Hackney Marshes, right? Oh, yeah. Of a of a Sunday in London, you don't want to do that. And the the only ever time I was in Hackney before was in the Hackney Empire to see my mate Ardlow Hanlon before. Father Ted. Oh, right. Okay. And there was Doing about, a stand up. And there was game. about 18 people. And the empire is huge. Yeah, it is and Ireland was yeah. up trying to do his thing. And then that year, uh, Father Ted took off and the whole thing changed for him. But it was amazing those early stand ups, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. But I was there. But we, John, do you remember where we were supposed to be? Yes. Last week. Last week, we were supposed to be at the Ted Talk conference which we were invited to in Vancouver. In Vancouver yeah. But we couldn't go because it was too. we were too busy with too much on, right? We hopefully we'll go next year. But yeah. you know who was speaking of that? 
our friend... Elon Musk. Elon Musk. He was speaking, and we could have been there saying, Elon, <laughs> Elon, <laughs> yeah. send us a tweet. Uh, we, we, we still need to corner him for, for the podcast, actually. Uh, yeah. yeah we do we the will. Joe Rogan. He can spliff up. He can skin <laughs> yeah. up. And you can just do your Joe Rogan there and say, really? That's fascinating. I'll roll it for him. Yeah, <laughs> I know you will. <laughs> anyway, he's going to try to take over Twitter. Yes. Big, big story. Why don't we get to somebody who really knows what they're talking about? <laughs> talking yeah. about <laughs> a friend of the show, great guy. Lots of Irish people will remember Mark. They mightn't have seen him for a while as the anchor man of primetime in his pomp. He's done a huge amount of other stuff, sold companies, created companies, all to do with the internet, all to do with media online. Let's go and talk to Mark Little about what this means. I'm looking now at the uh, front page of the Financial Times says, Twitter cooks up a poison pill to thwart Musk's 43 billion takeover. You probably heard about it over the last couple of days. Elon Musk has made a takeover bid for Twitter. The Twitter management have decided we don't want any of this sort of stuff. And it's kind of the beginning of a process. Many people would just say, look, that's a media event, a finance event, but maybe it's something deeper. And maybe it's something more consequential. And we have on the line Mark Little, a, a man who'll be known to many of the listeners. Mark, how are you? I'm doing great, David. Thanks for having me. Not at all. Now, listen, listen. Let's let's talk straight away, Mark. One of your one of your gigs recently was vice president of media Europe for Twitter. So you worked deep in Twitter. You know the company well. What do you make of this? First of all. <laughs> Well, first of all, yeah, I don't have any shares in Twitter, so I have no conflict of interest there. But like, I, I sort of feel for for my former colleagues at Twitter because, like, Twitter, to be quite honest, in the beginning was was pretty chaotic, right? It was a place that was it was very flat, no hierarchies, and really enjoyed working there. Great people, but it had a real disorganization vibe about it. And it's in the last couple of years, it's really got its act together. So I kind of feel it's a real shame. It's got this distraction. It's been doing really good work in terms of making the platform safer, the business model stronger. And then along comes what I think they call in technology, this chaos monkey. Um, <laughs> I love Elon that. Musk. That's John Davis's it's chaos monkey. Phrase. It's actually, <laughs> it's a really indicative phrase. Technologists use it. It was actually, I think, Netflix in the early days of their platform. They would intentionally get some actor to come in and cause chaos to test the resilience of the system. And that for me is the big story about Elon Musk. He's a chaos monkey, a bit like Trump was for democracy. Elon Musk is for big tech. He's the kind of person who comes in like with promoting his Dogecoin. Um, you know, he has, you know, all these pseudo events that he, he cooks up and this is the latest one of them. So I'm kind of less interested in whether or not he actually gets through with the bid or what the drama is right. at the boardroom level. Much more interested in what this says about what I think is a slow motion fragmentation of the internet. And someone like, you know, Moss comes in, tests uh, the strength of these systems. And we suddenly realize it's like the end of The Wizard of Oz, where the big... You know, <laughs> the big reveal is there is... Yeah. There's no one there. And, and that's kind of in some ways what he is exemplifying here. Like the richest man in the world goes and buys what becomes our public square. There's something wrong here, if that's possible first of all. And also then, you know, if he actually goes ahead and does it, um, do we want the richest person on the earth deciding how we speak and how we interact? And that's why this is significant, not the boardroom drama or the shareholder value. But it's interesting, you, you mentioned The Wizard of Oz. I mean, the other great movie of that generation was Citizen Kane. 
And Citizen Kane yeah. is about a sort of a, a you know a very wealthy man who decides to buy up all the newspaper industries and tries to exercise his uh, his own view. So let, let's let's talk about the that idea, the, prop, the proposition that the richest man in the world buys the public space. Let's 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 explore that idea a bit more. So I mean, I think he's like I've met him and I've, I've interviewed him, and I, I find him really compelling because he's kind of. I suppose our generation, David, have to say, like the, the Gen Xers, right? Yeah. When the internet came along, I don't know about you, but I found it absolutely exhilarating, right? I was working at RTE. I was the man on the telly. Nobody could speak to me. And then suddenly on Twitter, I could actually get questions. I remember crowdsourcing questions on Twitter for the late Brian Lenehan or, you know, the financial regulator during the crisis. And these were people, you know, people in the banking sector who were actually giving me information I never would have found. So yeah. for me, the internet was an exhilaration. The old gatekeepers were gone and in their place, everybody could tell a story. And I think Musk for me was very compelling. When I first met him, he had this great sense of removing any of the limitations, you know, literally limitations yeah. from gravity to setting up electric vehicles. The problem was the dark side of that started to become apparent. I think the, the second wave of the internet, we suddenly realized that all these problems that Musk seemed to, you know, propose solutions to were much deeper. There were system failures. It wasn't just a bug in the system that we had misinformation. It was actually the way the system was designed. And so for me, I think technologists and the ones who build the system we have, have a blind spot. They don't have that sense of humanity because everything is an engineering problem. And that's what I have a problem with around Musk. I admire him. In fact, some of his ideas for Twitter, really good. He says, expose the algorithm. Tell us how the decisions are made. You know, he's very good ideas about subscription revenues that might actually help, uh, you know, better business models for Twitter. But in the end of the day, the engineering mindset is that you move fast and you break things. And really, in the end of the day, that's the way things work. And I feel that's part of the problem we've had in the past 10 years is we should be moving slow with purpose and rebuilding things. And I don't think Musk is the kind of person that's going to bring that kind of humanistic principle back into the way the internet is designed. And we're at a tipping point. We really are. And that's why I think Musk's intervention, while I admire the guy, he is not the right person. He is not the man for the moment. Let's explore that tipping point. Let's explore what you mean by we're at a tipping point. The internet that you and I knew, and you're absolutely right, when I first uh, came across it, we're talking really the early 2000s, because the late 90s, it was still very, very much, it was a technical problem. You couldn't get bandwidth. You couldn't get this. But by, by the 2000s, you begin to think, okay. But I do remember, it's interesting you're talking about TV. I remember interviewing people years ago and reading hard copy books beforehand for ages and ages and ages, because that was the only source of information you had on that person. This person's coming to the studio. And I was like, who is there? You know, going down to Easton's, getting the book, reading it the night before and doing it. And now you're like, let's go online. Let's, let's Google this person, whatever, right? So it has changed, particularly our business. There's absolutely no doubt. But what I want to say is, why do you think now we're at an inflection point, a tipping point? And why do you think this is just simply resonant of that point? And where do you think we're going? <laughs> So I was talking to a tech executive about two weeks ago, and, and I was talking about the real world versus online. And this person said to me, we no longer use that phrase real world, because online and offline, for most people now, are the real world. I mean, their interactions are happening in a way that you cannot make that distinction anymore. And I think that's the first fundamental problem, right? That we all really exist. It is all our culture. It's no longer social media. It's media. It's no longer internet culture. It's culture. The language we use is so completely online at the, mo at the moment. So that's the first thing. It wasn't a group of people sitting in the corner, the nerds who understood 
how the internet worked. Now it is the basis for our life. I mean, look at pandemic. We could not have survived pandemic were it not for technology. It changed our education system, the healthcare system. So it is fundamentally not just part of our life, but it is our life. And so that's the first change that's happened over 10 years. But now there's three things I think happening that, that do spell real potential disaster for us. And first of all, we're seeing the splinter net, right? So we live in this part of the internet where there's still generally freedom and openness, but the most people who use the internet in places like China and now Russia are living under complete surveillance when it comes to the state. Yeah, the absolutely. Yeah. Things, you know, the, the, the way that the, as you know, Shoshana Suboff talks about surveillance capitalism, the underlying algorithmic model for the internet is to make us all outraged because that's the way the system works. It's advertising. We all need to be emotionally excited. And it's a bit like 2008 when a, a handful of people knew how the credit default swaps were working and the instruments created by the banks. It's the same now. There's very few people who understand how these algorithms that choose the content for us work. And finally, then there is this broad information crisis, which is a bit like a virus where We've now got a point where the real threat to free speech is not people coming in and doing content moderation. It's the fact that as great writer uh, Peter Pomerantsev says, censorship through noise, the bullies have taken over. Yeah. And I think most of us now feel really worried about what we say online. And because the bullies have taken over the square, there really isn't a free speech. And that's where cancel culture really comes from. It's not about the right or the left fighting. It's about most of us, I think, on the internet right now, we fear what we're going to see in the morning. We don't like to express ourselves because everything is so dominated by the loud voice. And that last point is, I think, probably the most serious right now. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. That I just remember uh, Yuval Hariri, you know, uh, Mr. Sapiens, he was saying something, he was saying, that he said, like, you know, censorship used to be about blocking information. He said, now censorship is about flooding your brain with useless and various different pieces of fake news. And that's how you censor people, is you just attack them with all sorts of ideas, some of which are true, some of which are not true, some of which are loud, some of which are quiet. But it's, it's as you say, it's noise. It's just this constant noise. Steve Bannon, you know, Trump's former advisor, he had it best when he said, you know, his tactic was to flood the zone with shit, right? <laughs> to basically create such doubt and yeah. distrust about everybody. And what they, this is called the liar's dividend. Uh, some people have talked about this phrase, which is, if you're someone like Putin, right, you don't have to persuade somebody that you're telling the truth. You just have to persuade the person that everybody is lying. And then in that environment where we all just doubt everything, that's where the liars and the conspiracy theorists and the propagandists, they love that atmosphere. And that's the way- they Of course they do. Of course they do. You know, because you're, what, you're, what you're basically saying is, is black is white and today is tomorrow. And you basically, you know nothing. And once you, once you say to somebody, you know nothing, then people become totally ungrounded. They become totally unmoored from their, from their, their sense of reality. Now let's, Mark, it's always fascinating. I've always found your career fascinating. You've gone from old school, newspaper media in the beginning, then TV media, then you were the man on telly, the man on primetime. And most Irish people turned on primetime and said, he's going to tell me the truth. This guy is going to tell me the truth. Whatever Mark Little says, I'm pretty much believing this. And now you've seen your career change profoundly because that model atrophied. That basic one-to-many model has now become many-to-many, -many, right? Tell me where do you think this is all going? 
because I know you're now in Kinzen, you've you've done all sorts of stuff, you've, you know, news collating, trying to get to the truth of things. Where do you think it's all going? Because your final point there, the idea of flooding the zone with shit, is kind of terrifying. It is, and that's the way the internet is designed right now, is there's no proper oversight. And for me, you know, like yourself, I get exhausted reading my LinkedIn profile, because like, but, but a constant theme in all of the things I've done has been the fact I really welcome the idea that we don't have this gatekeeper elite system anymore. We don't have them at the banks yeah. anymore, religion, some ways the media. So I welcome the radical decentralization of power to individuals to see on their phone. You know, the power you have on your phone now today for me is a really inspiring thing. Here's the problem. Who's there to guide you? Where's the curator, the editor? And for me, it's about kind of coming up with a way for us to solve this contradiction. We now have power to make our own calls, our own decisions, but who's going to help guide us? And I remember years ago as a, a correspondent in the United States, I went to Iowa to a diner where the people in that diner had seen every single presidential candidate for 50 years. And I asked the mayor, how did they decide? And they said, they want someone just like themselves, but better. And I always feel that's kind of the role for guides, for influencers, people like yourself, who are actually helping guide people toward information that can liberate themselves. So as the, the internet gets decentralized. I'd like to see a lot more power given to individuals to have a label, a bit like your food labeling, to understand why that piece of information is there. Was it artificially created? Was it, you know, pr promoted by a bot network? And I think that's what we're going to start to see more content moderation, better content moderation, regulation that will make the internet more transparent, make the tech platforms more accountable. The work I do at Kinzen is providing early warning of organized campaigns of misinformation and disinformation. Just give more power and context back to the individual. So it's more this balance between decentralization and making people feel like they're digital citizens, not digital subjects. So that's what really I, I would like to see over the next 10, 15 years, using the decentralization we're seeing on the internet to give more power to individuals in the same way when we walk into a supermarket, we know exactly what's in the food. We know exactly what's in the price we buy. And that's the kind of internet I think that will solve these three major problems. So that's the future that I'm trying to build. John? Mark, you just mentioned there uh, about more regulation. Who exactly is going to be the regulator, though? Especially on a global level, Elon Musk. Well, that's the, <laughs> but that's, that's but the, that's that's the, the problem. Right? This is this is what this headline is saying. He wants to be the top dog, and, and that's what we're going to replace, right? We're we're not. I think the one thing I've seen there's two types of regulation happening right now. One is what's happening in the UK and to an extent Canada, Australia, where they're saying they're banning certain types of content that's harmful. Ban it, take it down. Yeah. There's another type of regulation that in Europe at the moment, the Digital Services Act and a few affiliated pieces of legislation are saying, no, no, make the process, uh, you know, absolutely accountable and transparent. Tell us why you take things down. So I love that kind of move toward more transparent systems. A bit like, as I say, back in the, the financial crisis, if we knew what was going on, um, and we knew how, how difficult it was to, to understand how these things worked. So that's the kind of regulation that I think is going to be more empowering for individuals is making these things much more transparent. And then the content moderation itself, it's not about taking stuff down. It's about better context and labeling, you know, having a bit of friction so that, you know, that way when you get a piece of information in your feed and you're like feeling very emotional yeah. and you don't understand that someone's trying to manipulate you. So I think we can move toward a future 
in which the kind of content moderation that I'm talking about is less about taking people down off the internet or removing content and just making it way more transparent, re-adding the context that you used to have when you walked into a news agent or you turned on the radio. Yeah, exactly. And that's the future we need is content moderation, decentralized individuals to make them more empowered rather than saying what we should see on the internet. And what, what about the question of anonymity online? You know, I mean, you spoke about kind of armies of bots there and everything. If everyone had to be who they are online, people wouldn't be saying half the shit they're saying. Yeah, it's, it's a really good example of what we what they say in technology is a wicked problem. So I totally agree with you. It would instinctively make everybody accountable for what they say. But there are problems there because of the dissent, you know, the Arab uprisings that I remember for me marked a big change. If we had made those people, you know, open and accountable and put their names on the internet, then some dictator autocrat yeah. would have gone and put yeah. him in jail. And we're seeing that right now in Russia, right? So the, the, this is one of those difficult trade-offs. And for anybody who has simple solutions for you, they're not paying attention or they're lying to you. And this is one of those areas. So I think generally I would argue for a public square, a bit like public media, where we all share the same platform and then create you know, places we can go to say whatever we like uh, anonymously. And, you know, basically have our own, you know, expression, our definitions of freedom of expression. So the creation of a public utility where we're all together and then paid for services or smaller communities and platforms that have their own way of setting their own regulations. But anonymity, ending that is not a silver bullet and could create unintended consequence like every potential reform of the Internet. And that's why this is so difficult. Mark Little, listen, I could I could. I could listen to you on this for ages. By the way, we're drafting you into Doki. I've just realised now, as you were talking, I said, now that's that's a really interesting theme. We're going to have Mark Little on the future of the internet. <laughs> we're going to talk about it in real life. Can in you real imagine? life, <laughs> in, a, in a tent down the road. This is Mark, brilliant stuff. Great to see you. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Mark. Mark is fascinating there. Yeah, he's, um, he knows his onions. He does know his onions. But the, I, I was trying to look it up there. I read somewhere quite recently. Over on the, the internet. On the internet. <laughs> <laughs> so you better trust it. Fake <laughs> news. But that, that, in actual fact, it was somewhere around a third of people actually don't really want freedom of choice on everything. They A lot of the time people want to be told what to think and guide us. I That's mean, me. You tell me to think. <laughs> But Mark talked about that, about guiding people through this whole jungle of information and yeah. misinformation and all the rest. And it is really daunting for people to, you know, when you're Huge researching, daunting. you know, when you're Googling it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it was interesting that, and I can't remember what the exact figure was, but it was in around the 30% absolutely do not want freedom of choice. This is this is a, was an American figure, so... Yeah, that might well, have I mean, skew and I, can well. I can understand. I mean, it's funny. I thought what his point about our generation, the Gen Xers, I didn't even know we were called Gen Xers until about two weeks ago, right? <laughs> but our, our generation, right? Because we kind of came to the internet like, like, wow, this is fascinating. This huge amount of information for free. This is transformative. Yeah. Now, Musk is our generation too. And all those are all those founders, a lot of the founders of the big tech companies are Gen Xers, right? Yeah, yeah. So in a way... We're the sort of hinge generation. 
Then we look at our kids and they are the generation that's brought up with it. And for them, there is no contrast between real life and your online life. Mm. And for them, culture. So we're in a way looking at this quite differently. And I think what are you saying is that Musk doesn't realize in a way what he's buying because he's still thinking a bit like a Gen Xer. Right, yeah, but and with his engineering hat on, with his engineering as hat opposed hat. to his human hat on. Well, like, I tell you, the great thing is, uh, you know, Rory Sutherland. It's the difference, yes, of course, yeah, the yeah, difference yeah. between engineers and marketers, right? Yeah. Rory Sutherland has a great riff on how engineers shouldn't run the world, even though they do. And he was talking about the Euro, what's it called, the Eurostar, yes, from yeah. London to Paris, and he said they spent something like two and a half billion, the engineers, trying to make the train go 10 minutes faster, Yeah. right? And this was what they did in the UK, engineers in the UK and France. And he said, don't you think it would be a far better idea, right? Rather than spend 2 billion on making the train go 10 minutes faster, allow the train go 10 minutes slower, but spend the 2 billion on having the world's top supermodels, men and women, were swanning up serving Chateau Petrus for free to everyone. You'd be on the train for five hours happily. <laughs> Absolutely. And that is the difference between we want a world that's run by marketing spoofers rather than engineers. While I have you there, listen, I just want to say thank you so much to all our Patreons who really supported myself and John throughout the last nearly three years. Man. Three years, wow. Oh, it's a long time. I thought it only started last week. It's such a good crack, though, isn't it? It is, it is, it is. It is. It's, like, it's like having the dream gig. You know? <laughs> thank you very, very much. And if you do want to support us on Patreon, it's patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. You get ad-free, you get courses, you get chats, you can ask me questions, all sorts of stuff, and you really become part of the gang. So that's patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. And again, thank you very much. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.